Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Oh, am I on? Uh, good morning. It is really good to uh, see you. Do keep Revelation chapter 3 open in front of you. This is the sixth of the seven letters found at the start of Revelation. When I turned up this morning, um, Evan said to me, he said, morning, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about the seventh letter. And that really scared me. But I'm pretty sure we're on the letter six of seven letters this morning. Um, so just to recap, these letters were written from Jesus to seven churches that would be in, in modern-day Turkey. And so each letter is addressed to a church, and each letter is addressed to a specific church in a specific context. But it is okay for us to open this letter. It is okay for us to look at it this morning. shouldn't really open other people's posts. I'm pretty sure that's, that's illegal. But Jesus commands us to open these letters. So if you look down to, right to the end of our passage, to chapter 3, verse 13, where Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this morning, we need to read this letter to this church. We need to listen. We need to reflect. And with the Holy Spirit's help, we need to apply what it means to our church and to us as individual Christians. So why don't I pray for us uh, as we get stuck into this letter. Father God, as we meet together this morning, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak. We thank you that your word is eternal. And we just pray that through the Spirit's work in our hearts this morning, you would show us the things that apply to our church and apply to our lives. And Father, please would you show us more of your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So today we get to the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And this is a church that I think is struggling. It's struggling. They're finding things hard. They're facing opposition, and they probably feel very weak. So if you look at the second half of verse 8, Jesus says, I know that you have very little strength. I know that you have little strength. And we live in a world that is obsessed by outward strength. We're impressed by people who have lots of money, or have uh, lots of power, or have lots of fame, who have lots of influence. We're impressed by numbers. We're impressed by size, bigger organizations, bigger buildings, bigger events. If it's bigger, it is better. And the church isn't insulated from that. The church can be like that. The church can have celebrities. The church uh, can have an unwritten list of markers of success. And so if your church is really big and your media is really good and your music's really good and your pastor has written books and speaks at big conferences and, and your coffee's really good, then we can be more impressed by that church. And most of those things are not bad. And of course, we want God's kingdom to grow and we want churches to grow. We want more people to become Christians. But when you look to the church in Philadelphia, I think it would have been really easy to have looked at it and to have felt sorry for it, to have felt pity for it, to have looked down at it and even to have thought, oh, that is a church that is failing. It might have been small, it might have been struggling. Uh, I agree with what Steve was saying earlier. I think probably it wouldn't have looked like it had outward strength. Nothing impressive about it at all. Probably didn't know if it could keep going. Every year, every Sunday, maybe every day was getting harder and harder. Sardis, the church we looked at last week, well, that did look impressive. So it had a reputation for being alive, even though it wasn't. People probably thought that was a really inspiring church, but not Philadelphia. But what does Jesus say? 
What does Jesus say? He knows that they have little strength. What is his view? And that's always the question, isn't it? That's the question we keep on coming back to as we read through these letters. What is Jesus' view on this church and this church and this church? And ultimately, what is Jesus' view on our church? Because it should be his view that matters. And when you read the letter to the church in Philadelphia, what you find is that it is probably the warmest of the seven letters that Jesus sends. It's warm, it's deeply letter and the letter to Smyrna, which is kind of a parallel letter, contain no warnings. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He just fills it with encouragement. Now, that doesn't mean that they are a perfect church. It doesn't mean that they are not a group of sinners. They are. They're flawed. But Jesus looks at this church that has little strength. He looks at a church that is weary, a church that is struggling to keep going, that is being faithful, but probably isn't being impressive. And he takes it in his arms And he speaks words of warm, compassionate encouragement. And maybe Jesus looks for different things than we do when he looks for success. Maybe he looks for different things than what we do. Maybe that is a warning for us. But maybe today you are weary. Maybe you are weary. Maybe you're physically weary. I was physically weary on on Friday night, and I almost fell asleep on the train and almost ended up in Guildford, uh, which would have been bad. I mean, that's nothing against Guildford, but it would have just been annoying. Um, But when I talk about weariness, I'm thinking more of spiritual weariness. So weariness in the Christian walk. Maybe you are weary of your battle with sin. And so you're weary of that constant cycle of sinning and repenting and sinning again. and, And there are just some sins you are still fighting with. Maybe you're weary of speaking to people about Jesus and getting pushed back all the time. I thought earlier this week about... Um, the number of books I've given away over the years, probably given hundreds of books away to people who are not Christians, most of them probably have never been read. And when I realized that, I thought, that, that, that makes me feel weary. Maybe you're weary of feeling like you are one of the bad guys, that Christians are the bad guys in the corner of the room, that we are the bigots in society's eyes. Maybe you are suffering and you are weary Weary of trusting God's promises in the midst of darkness and confusion. You are trusting God's promises, but you're spiritually weary. Weary of the Christian fight. And you feel weak. You, you have little strength left. Maybe even being here this morning is hard. It's really hard. A few years ago, I had a text from someone. Uh, someone I've been reading the Bible with. It's from my old church. And I remember where I was. I remember the sofa I was sat on. It was on a Saturday night. And I get, got this message from him. And he said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I cannot keep going as a Christian. This is too hard. I can't keep doing this. I can't fight sin. I can't face the trouble. I'm done. And I thought, this is really worrying. I need to speak with this guy as soon as possible, talk to him. But, but what do I say? And the church in Philadelphia has little strength. It was definitely weak. It was probably weary. But Jesus just showers it with encouragements in this letter. And if you're here this morning and you are feeling like, gosh, I'm, on the, I'm, I'm burning out as a Christian, I am feeling weak and weary, then I hope this morning is really, really encouraging for you. Now, there have been seven letters. There are seven letters, and there are warnings that we also need to heed. And maybe you or maybe us as a church, we need to heed some of the warnings in other letters. But maybe for some people this morning, it is the encouragements you need to hear in this letter. Um, There are so many encouragements in here. I think I could have come up with a dozen. Uh, We're going to look at six 
Now, six points is um, normally a bad idea for a sermon, but I'm going to break the rule this morning because I just want to emphasize how many encouragements there are. You can tell me um, afterwards if I was wrong about that. I actually had seven last night, but I cut one out because of time. Might be relieved to hear. So here we go. Here are the six encouragements. Here's the first one. Jesus knows what they are going through. He knows what they are going through. Have a look down at the second half of verse 8, where Jesus says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus knows them as a church, and he knows them individually. So he knows what they've gone through, he knows what they are going through, he knows what they have done. And in some ways, that is terrifying. Because all those other warnings to all those other churches about false teaching and about immorality and about half-heartedness, those come from the fact that Jesus knows. He knows everything. But if Jesus is your saviour and you're trying to live for him as king, I think it is a great encouragement that he knows. He knows. Wouldn't it be terrible if there was a part of your, your life, maybe what is going on at work or, or, or things you've, you've, conversations you've had with your family or how you're feeling or even the sins you are battling with and Jesus just didn't know. He was just oblivious to it. I think that would be terrible. But Jesus knows. Whatever you are going through this morning, Jesus knows. He knows every single element of it. And he knew what the Philadelphians were going through. And that's encouraging for them. And what he knows is that they had faced opposition and persecution from the synagogue of Satan. And the synagogue of Satan is is John's phrase for for Jews who were persecuting Christians. But in verse 8, we're told that the Philadelphians had not denied Jesus' name. At this time, people were being asked to worship Jesus the name of the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor was Domitian at this point, and Domitian actually changed his title to Dominus Edus, which means Lord and God. That's quite arrogant, isn't it? So he was saying to people, "When when you turn up to speak to me, don't call me by my name, call me Lord and God. Call me Lord and God. And so it may have been the case that that in in Philadelphia, when when they did certain public events, or maybe when they were told to go and and go to the temple or something like that, they had to refer to the mission as Lord and God. And he is Caesar. He's the most powerful man in the world, so disobeying him is a big thing to do. But we are told that the Christians in Philadelphia hadn't. They hadn't denied Jesus' name. They were saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And maybe that led to physical persecution. Maybe Maybe it just closed doors for them. Doors in business, Social opportunities. Now, in Britain in 2021, we are not told to call our leaders Lord and God. So you're not told to go into the office tomorrow morning and begin by singing a hymn of praise to Boris Johnson or Sadiq Khan. I mean, let's be honest, it'd be hilarious for the first couple of days. But, uh, but actually, there are Christians around the world where that is a lived reality for them. And they need to make that decision, and that decision could end up with them being Uh, imprisoned or even killed but actually in our society there are things we have to sign up to or we are told to sign up to there are things that we are told to profess allegiance to almost as gods those things are, are ideologies and doctrines and we're told look this is what society thinks this is the right thing to do and if you don't go along with this doors are going to be closed 
doors to promotion at work, doors to, to being invited to certain social things and parties, doors to just being normal, being seen as normal at school, doors maybe even within some families and friendships. And so being faithful to Jesus' name and Jesus' teachings is not the easy option. But here's their second encouragement. Jesus has already given them the grace to keep going. The church in Philadelphia had been faithful, and uh, what we see is that they didn't have much strength. They were weary and they were weak, but they had enough strength to remain faithful. And I think that is encouraging. So Jesus gives them enough daily grace to remain faithful to him in the midst of opposition. It doesn't mean they're going to be incredibly successful. It doesn't mean they're going to have an easy life. But it does mean that they have had enough grace to remain faithful to him in the midst of opposition. And if you look forward to verse 10, Jesus says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, We're not quite sure what that means, but it could mean that there'll be more persecution coming in Philadelphia or across the whole Roman Empire, but Jesus is going to protect them from it. He's not going to put them through that persecution. And that is interesting because when he writes to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, which is the parallel church, the parallel letter, when he does that in verse 10, he says this, chapter 2, verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, but be faithful even to the point of death. So it might be that Jesus is saying to the Philadelphian Christians, Persecution is going to happen, but you're not going to face it. But to the Christians in Smyrna, he's saying persecution is going to happen and you will face it. And why does he say that? I don't think we know. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus knows and that Jesus has a plan. And it might be that Jesus knows those churches, he knows those individuals, and within his plan, he knows what they can cope with and he's given them enough grace to deal with that, whatever they are going through. And it might be the same in this congregation. There are some people who are suffering um, incredibly. There are other people who are suffering in different ways. And there are some people here this morning who would think, well, actually, it's okay at the moment. Life is okay. Why does that happen? Why does that happen to different people? We don't know. But we do know that Jesus gives us enough grace to be faithful through the things he has chosen for us to face. He gives us enough grace to be faithful through the things he has chosen that we face. And I think that is really encouraging. Here's the third encouragement. Jesus' word can be trusted. In verse 7, start of the passage, it says, These are the words of him who is holy and true. Jesus can be trusted. His words are truth. Think of some of the questions that might just slip into the Philadelphians' minds when they are facing all this suffering and opposition. Is it worth it? Is Jesus Christ really the right person to be following? Because this Roman emperor, actually following him seems to be the easier option at the moment. We've put our trust and our lives in the words of a carpenter from a place in Galilee that probably none of us have ever visited. We probably never met him in his earthly life. We probably never saw any of his miracles firsthand. And we have made a life and death decision to follow him. And maybe, just maybe, there were moments where Satan was whispering to them, you made the wrong decision. This Jesus will let you down. 
And as the letter opens, Jesus is saying, you've put your hope in me for eternal life, and you were right to do that. You can trust me. I am the Holy One. The Old Testament regularly describes God as, as holy, and Jesus is claiming that for himself. He's saying that he is God, and he's saying that his words are true. He's saying he knows the end from the beginning. He's much more powerful than even the Roman Empire. And in verse 9, it says, there will even come a time in the future where those persecuting the Philadelphian Christians will have to fall down and say to them, yes, Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus did love you. Jesus is the truth. He is. And that's an encouragement, isn't it, for weary Christians this morning. So you're ever thinking, is this worth it? Is this the right thing to do? Jesus his words are true. Following him, following his teachings is always, always, always the right choice. He alone holds the words of eternal life. Here's the fourth encouragement, and that is that the door to our eternal life is locked open by Jesus. Uh, in verse 7, it says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is calling back to something that appears in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where it says this. God says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. King David, of course, was the, the great king of Israel. He was the great king of God's people in the Old Testament. And as king, he could decide who came into the kingdom. He could decide who could live there, who could be part of God's people. And also, who couldn't come in? And Jesus says, I have that key. I am great David's greater son. I'm his descendant. I'm the one he was pointing forward to. That key is mine. Ah, but much bigger than geographical Israel, I can decide who comes into God's kingdom and who doesn't. And that is a huge claim, isn't it? And the other image in these verses is the door. Jesus has unlocked this door and holds open the door, and no one else can shut it. Now, there's some debate about what this door represents. Um, as we work through Revelation over the next few years, you'll find there's some debate about every verse in Revelation. It's just the nature of Revelation, sorry. Um, but I'm going to put both options in front of you this morning, and I think both of these are true. They're biblically true, um, but you can work out which one you think um, is, is correct or not. Um, it may mean, as we've already heard this morning, that this is a door to evangelism and mission. And so even in the midst of persecution, Jesus is going to say to the Philadelphian Christians, even in the midst of all of that, I'm going to keep the opportunities open. There will always be opportunities to speak of me. And I think, I think that's true. And that phrase is used in other places in the New Testament. So Paul in Colossians, he uses that language of praying for an open door. And so the door was open for the Philippian Philadelphians, even though they were weak. But I also think it could be the door to salvation and eternal life. So if you skip forward a page to chapter 4, verse 1, you will see that John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it's about a door standing open in heaven. And so it could be that Jesus has opened this door and he will keep it open for the Philadelphian Christians. This door into heaven, this door to eternal life. And that is really encouraging. 
Where I work, one of our main gates um, is into the, into the building complex is uh, electronically con controlled using passes in theory. Um, it was really dodgy. When, 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 we, when it was introduced first, it was very dodgy. It's now been fixed. Um, but for quite a while, you, had to, um, you would use your pass, and it wouldn't quite work. Um, and then you'd use it again. And then on your fifth attempt, it would actually work. Uh, and then uh, sometimes one half of the gate would open, and the other half wouldn't. And then sometimes when your back was turned, the gate would see that your back was turned and would suddenly close on you. And um, as people were scurrying through, and they'd have to squeeze through. And I, when I was on gate duty in the mornings, I used to annoy the facilities team by radioing them constantly, saying, can you come and sort out the gate? Can you stand in front of the gate? Can you override the gate? Can you hit the gate with a brick or something? Just to, uh, just to make, because it keeps on closing. That isn't what Jesus is describing here. Okay? That isn't the illustration that he is using. Jesus doesn't say, look, there's a door. There's a door into eternal life. And if you push hard enough and you keep pushing and you keep your eye on it and, and things go well and you don't turn your back on it, then you're just about squeezed through. He doesn't say to the Philadelphian Christians, look, if you are godly enough and your quiet times have been good enough this week and you've hit all seven mornings or at least six mornings and you've read the church prayer news and you've prayed through the church prayer news, which is not the same thing, and you're on at least two rotors at church, preferably three, and you haven't had any sinful thoughts in the last 24 hours, and you've genuinely loved everyone you've met, even the annoying people, and you turn up to church this morning, and you are overflowing with praise and singing about things that just burst forth from your heart, if all of those things line up, then you can push that door, and that door will be open for you. That door will open. That isn't what Jesus says. What Jesus says is he's keeping the door open. What he opens, no one can shut. The door's not going to swing shut on you. And what he shuts, no one can open. This is all on him, on his life and his death and his resurrection and his sovereign rule. For Christians, our only hope in the face of death is Jesus. And some people find that really frustrating. Some people find the idea that Jesus says he's in control of our salvation. They find that frustrating. I've come to the position where I think it's a massive relief. I was, um, I was praying earlier this week using Valley of Vision, which is, uh, and lots of you will be familiar with Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers. Very helpful if you're struggling with prayer, which I was earlier this week. And I found a prayer, and the heading was just sin. And I thought, that, that's, that's a helpful prayer, so I'll pray that. And, and this was the opening line. It said, Lord, pardon all my sins, known and unknown, felt and unfelt. Pardon all my sins, known and unknown. And when I read that, I thought, that's not good. Because I have enough sins that I'm aware of. I have enough sins that I know about. Please don't tell me that there are other sins I haven't even realized yet. But when I get to that, and then I come to this passage, and I think... Jesus holds the door of salvation open for me. Jesus holds it open. He's locked it open for me if I'm trusting in him. It's not about me. And if you're someone who's here this morning and you're not a Christian, then it's great to have you here. But you need to realize when you see these verses that these verses are also saying that no one can be saved, no one can be right with God, no one can have true and perfect life, the life we were made for, for eternity, unless they go through Jesus. If you don't go through Jesus, the door is shut. The door is shut. Do you come and talk to me afterwards if you've got any questions about that? The door is open if we are trusting in Jesus.
What an encouragement to weary Christians at Philadelphia. Maybe if they were battling with sin in their daily lives. Just thinking, can I keep going? Well, it's about Jesus. Here's the fifth encouragement. Jesus will make them into pillars. Jesus will make them into pillars. Now, as encouragements go, that as a heading is not that encouraging. Unless you have an interest in a niche part of architecture. Um, Pillars seem quite boring. um, But actually, it is really exciting. So if you look at verse 12, it says this. It says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. We think that in Roman cities at the time, when they built temples, rich people would have contributed money, and then they would have had their names written on those temple pillars. But there was a big problem with that. Because that kind of thing happens in Kingston, Kingston University, and and they have buildings named after it. But unlike in Kingston, in Philadelphia, there were a lot of earthquakes. And so we know in the first century that there were two or three major earthquakes. And when those earthquakes came, everything got destroyed. Everything collapsed, and they had to evacuate the city. But Jesus says that the Philadelphian Christians, as weary and fragile as they are, will be permanent pillars in the eternal temple that he is building. They might seem weak and fragile by the world's standards, but they will be an integral part of what Jesus is building, made significant by him forever. He says, I'll make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. And if you're a weak, weary Christian this morning, struggling to keep going, Jesus says he's going to make you a permanent part of God's eternal kingdom. And no earthquake, nothing else will ever force you to leave his city. And here's the final encouragement. Jesus will give them a new name, a new name. Verse 12, Jesus says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. If you're like me, you you constantly feel your inadequacies. And the thing is, we are inadequate. We feel weak because we are weak. But Jesus gives us a new name, a new identity, an identity that is actually our original calling as God's creations. It's who we were supposed to be. And the encouragement for the, Philippi- for the Philadelphian Christians, I'm talking a lot about the Philippian Christians this morning, don't worry. Um, weary as they are, is that Jesus gives it to them. It's not about them proving themselves. Their identity, their new name, who they are, comes from Jesus. Over the summer, I read a book by a uh, Christian psychiatrist called Glenn Harrison. You might have come across him. I'd uh, recommend anything that he writes. He's very helpful. And he was talking about the self-esteem movement that has grown from the 50s and 60s and has had a, a big impact in a lot of what we do. And he says it is unhelpful to say to children, to grown-ups, to say to, to, to Christians, you're great. You're great. Do you know what? You are brilliant. To say to them, do you know what? You need to boost your self-esteem. You need to think more highly of yourselves. He says that's not helpful because we're not perfect. We can't live up to that standard. The answer is, who are you in Christ? So everyone is made in God's image. Everyone has that intrinsic value. But as a Christian, you have a new identity in Christ. And in this verse, Jesus isn't saying to the Philadelphian Christians, be encouraged, you're great. 
You might think you're weak, but no, you're strong, you're brilliant. Come on, think more highly of yourselves. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, be encouraged, you have a new name from me. Look at who you are in me, in Christ. There's a famous story about uh, John Chrysostom, who is the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 5th century, and he was facing off with an emperor because John Chrysostom went around preaching and the emperor didn't like it. And so the emperor dragged him in and said, I am going to banish you. I'm going to exile you. I'm going to send you away from your home. And John Chrysostom said, you cannot banish me for this world, this whole world is my father's house. The emperor said, I'm going to kill you. And John said, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. The emperor said, I'm going to take away your treasures. He said, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. The emperor, probably getting very frustrated by this point, said, I will drive you away from your friends and you have no one left. No, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, there is nothing you can do to harm me. I think that is the kind of encouragement that Jesus is giving the Philadelphian Christians. So there are six encouragements to a church that has little strength. And what is the application? The application is in verse 11. Jesus says this, I am coming soon, hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Hold on. I'm coming soon, hold on. Jesus says, I know you're weak, I know you're weary, don't worry, look at who I am. Just hold on to me, I'm coming soon. We sang that song earlier, a children's song called Jesus Strong and Kind. It's by Colin Buchanan. Colin Buchanan um, uh, is well known for writing really fun, upbeat uh, children's songs. I once saw Colin Buchanan at an event years ago jump out from behind an organ dressed as Superman with explosions going off. Um, he's, he's great. But that song, Jesus Strong and Kind, is as true for us as it is for all the kids. It's as true for you if you are 100 as it is for the youngest children in this room. We need to know, and the Philadelphian Christians needed to know, that Jesus is strong. They are not strong, but he is. He's the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1, with eyes like blazing fire and, and, and a face like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. But he is also kind. He is the Jesus of Matthew chapter 11, who says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. All who are burdened, and I will give you rest. It's the same Jesus, strong and kind. Those things in perfect harmony, they're not opposed to each other. And that is wonderful for us, weary, weak Christians. I don't care if that is technically a kid's song or not. I think that's a great song for all of us to be singing this week. Jesus strong, Jesus kind. And my prayer for this morning as we finish has been that it would encourage you if you are a weary Christian, if you're a weak Christian, as it's encouraged me. But also that we can use this to encourage others. We can use this to encourage others. We thought about my friend at the start who texted me on a Saturday night and uh, these are the kind of words that I would now want to speak to him. Not to try and take his mind off it, but speak these truths to him. But I also thought last night, that was 10 years ago that he texted me and today, as far as I know, he is living for Jesus. Not because of anything I said, I don't think I was that helpful, but because of Jesus' daily grace for a Christian. He is still going. And so I hope that encourages us. I hope it encourages us to think of churches that are much smaller than us. We're really blessed here. There are churches that are much smaller 
facing proper hardship who are thinking, can we keep going? And finally, I hope it spurs us on to pray, to pray for ourselves and to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. When Jesus says, hold on, I think the perfect example of holding on is praying. Because you're just going to God the Father saying, I can't do this. I know I'm weak. I know that, but I know who you are. I know who your son is. I know who your spirit is. So I'm going to pray now. Then I'm going to hand over to Paul. And Paul is going to come and pray for the needs of our church. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for the letter to the Philadelphians. Thank you uh, so much for the, uh, the, the numerous encouragements that the Lord Jesus gives them. Father, we acknowledge this morning that all of us are weak Christians. All of us are flawed. All of us are fragile. None of us can do this on our own. And so, Father, we just pray this morning that we would be encouraged by these truths, uh, that we would live for you this week, that we would take opportunities to speak of you this week, that we would be faithful to you in the midst of opposition, that we would be uh, godly in following your good commands. But ultimately, Father, that we would see that, that all of this hangs on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Please remind us of that every single day this week, of our Lord Jesus, who is both strong and kind and is our hope. In his name we pray. Amen.